Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. Happy Friday. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It's Friday, May 7th. Lots to get to on this show, including the Angels' decision to designate Albert Pujols for assignment on Thursday. Yet another no-hitter. It seems like um, every other week sort of occurrence here in 2021. This time it's John Means. We'll dig into him as well as a few other early surprising pitchers. And we'll talk about the Dodgers pitching depth behind Dustin May with Dustin May undergoing Tommy John surgery. Uh, Keith, let's start with Albert Pujols. It seemed like a possibility to me that he'd get DFA'd this season, but not necessarily a guarantee because they could have justified doing it a year ago, maybe two years ago, based on the performance at this stage of, of his career. Uh, but they went ahead and made the move on Thursday, and the conversation on baseball Twitter immediately went to the wrong place. It went to a few different places. It went to, what team can we force Albert Pujols onto next? Mm-hmm. Which seems ridiculous, looking at his recent track record. Yeah, And then it also went to places like, why did he get such a big contract? It's like, that doesn't really matter at this point. Like, he was an amazing player for the league minimum to begin his career. I mean, when a legend is exiting the game, I feel like we're so fixated on how overpaid that player was at the end of his career that we forget how amazing that player was at the beginning of his career. Yeah, in Pujols' case, right, he was a Hall of Famer before he was 30. And he was just his 20s, you know, his years, what is he supposed to be, age 21 through 30, I guess. Was he 21 as a rookie? So... That 10-year period was so much better than his 30s, and particularly break his 30s down, 30 to 35. He was still pretty good. You know, started out as a superstar and ended it as still an above-average player. And then the last six years of his career, if you count this year, he was awful. I mean, they really should have done this years ago. Whether actually releasing him, doesn't need him for assignment, whatever. Just not playing him. They really should have just stopped playing him so much. That was the biggest mistake. And you know, it's the Steve Carlton problem, right? Where the it's what you leave going out the door. Um, the, on that's what people rent, right? It's recency bias. It's the last thing you remember. The last thing we'll remember. A lot of people will remember is probably our Pujols grounding into a double play because it's the thing he did seem like more than anything else his last couple of years. And that that to me is a shame because that's not the player he should be remembered as. And we shouldn't blame the player for the team's bad decision, right? It's not. It's like Chris Davis with the Orioles. None of this is Chris Davis's fault. They gave him a stupid contract. And I mean, I said it as did lots of people at the time. I remember having a piece with at ESPN with Jim Bowden, who argued that the Orioles should give Chris Davis an eight-year deal pretty similar to what he got. And I laughed. And Chris Davis was pretty terrible. That has nothing to do with Chris Davis, right? That is the team's bad decision. 
that is not the player's problem and nothing that we should that should not reflect poorly on the player if any of us were in that player's shoes or his family or his agent of course we would take the best financial offer we got the longest most lucrative contract offer than anyone gave us we should do that we should cheer players when they do that and we should not let that in any way reflect our opinions of the player i, I still think kevin brown got basically no hall of fame support in part not entirely but in part because the contract he got from the Dodgers, uh, which I think was, was that the first $100 million free agent contract for a pitcher, whatever it was, it was seen as exorbitant. And somehow people blamed Kevin Brown for that rather than blaming the Dodgers or just saying, hey, maybe baseball players are generally underpaid relative to the revenue they produce for their billionaire owners. Yeah. I mean, Pujols started his career with a string of seasons in which he was a five-war player Every single year from 2001 through 2010. That's amazing Like to be that good from the jump. And when you look at him, you, the career numbers are all-time great numbers. 667 career home runs, a 298 hitter with a 376 OBP, and a 545 slugging percentage. And that's with a five-year stretch at the end of his career where he's never hit 250. He's had an OBP under 300 in all but one of those seasons, and he hasn't slugged above 430 during that span. So his career numbers, had it been over after 2016, would even look better other than the counting stats would be a little bit lower. I mean, that's how amazing Albert Pujols was entering his 30s. Yeah, and I will say, um, I, I kind of like that. Hopefully he's, hope, I, I, nothing against him personally, but he's done, right? Nobody should be picking him up at this point. There is no, I don't think there's a single team in baseball he can help with. Uh, particularly because he can't he really can't play the field. So that just rules out half the teams already. If he is indeed done, I know he said he wants to continue to play and his, his side was pointing to slightly higher exit velocities from him this year, to which I'm thinking, well, small sample, plus isn't everybody hitting the ball harder this year? So I don't mm -hmm. really think that tells us anything. But he has more walks and strikeouts. I kind of like that. I mean, just as a numbers guy and, and someone who likes, uh, you know, obviously, you know, OPP is life. I like seeing that. And I would love to see him retire as one of the few players who's especially played for that length of time who walked more than he struck out in his career. Yeah, that's a very short list of players. 87 career war for Albert Pujols, by the way, who's actually gone down three war in the last five years. Could have been a 90 war player for his right. career, again, if it had ended sooner. So do not lose sight of how amazing this guy was when he entered the league. I think the other thing that's pretty interesting to me with Pujols, Keith, he came into the league out of Maplewoods Community College. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, a 13th rounder in 1999. So there's definitely that sort of underdog story there too, a success story and finding a guy in an unexpected place and ending up with a Hall of Famer. Yes. And, you know, was seen in what was known in high school. He played at the area code games. There's a photo I, I tried to, oh, for a while. It seems to have been scrubbed from the Internet. There's a photo of Pools from the area code game. He would have been 17 or 18 years old. And he looked almost exactly the same as he does now. Too. He had the, full, the same facial hair and everything. <laughs> and. You know, he was seen as a guy who, you know, was sort of uh, you know, bat first, looked like maybe an older body, played a lot of poor competition um, where he grew up. I also think it probably didn't help him that he had, you know, he came to the U.S. What, when he was 12 or so or 13. It's not like he did a billion showcase things. He wasn't going to be seen by, you know, it was in Southern California, it wasn't in Florida, and he wasn't doing all of the same high profile stuff that a lot of the higher draft picks end up doing. And then he goes to a 
you know, like you said, a fairly nondescript community college, not one of the ones that's produced a lot of big leaguers. And so same thing, my guess is he probably wasn't even cross-checked a ton that year, if at all. Um, I know I've heard stories here and there of, oh, this one, our area scout really liked this guy, but you know, nobody, nobody would go see him, right? I got this kid at a community college you've never heard of. Come scout him. I think we should take, you know, what if someone said, I think we should take him in the second round. And obviously nobody else in the industry thought that you probably wouldn't be taken that seriously. Um, you do wonder if we had some data today, if Pujols had been at this community college and posting, say, obscene exit velocities, which seems very likely, um, that I could, I wonder if he gets seen more and drafted higher and just considered more highly. Like, do, does the next Albert Pujols, assuming he's out there, and he may not be just yet, does he get more attention because there are other ways to find and evaluate a player now than there were literally, what is that, 22 years ago? I just think that the world has changed. I don't know if that's necessarily changed for the better. We also have fewer scouts. So maybe the guy who was pounding the table for pools, maybe he's out of a job now. And you know, teams like Baltimore and Houston and Milwaukee who have very, very few scouts relative to everyone else, maybe they just don't have a shot at that kid because they don't have the same kind of coverage and they don't have the connections, the networking that the area scouts have to even hear about a kid like that or spend the time to go back and see a player like that to make sure, you know, if you walk in and you say, oh my God, I'm looking at this this kid. This kid might be one of the best players in the draft this year. He's playing at Maplewoods Community College. You got to go see that guy multiple times to try to confirm your own opinion before you call in the reinforcements. And, you know, I feel like you know, maybe data helps, but fewer scouts probably doesn't help. And maybe we miss out on the next Pujols' result. Yeah, it's a sad thing to think about. And I think there's a, a similar story developing in Detroit right now. And a lot of people are asking, why the DFA? Why now? Isn't there a better way for a star to go out? Miguel Cabrera is on a crash course with a similar date in the future. It might still be a year or two away, but you could argue that the Tigers should make that decision sooner rather than later, open up that spot, and Miguel Cabrera should be maybe entering Cooperstown at the same time as Albert Pujols, even though there are still years left on the deal. We've talked about this before, this idea that for a rebuilding team, the playing time you have available is a valuable currency. If you give plate appearances to Miguel Cabrera, it means you're not giving them to, let's say, Isaac Paredes. And it is better for your organization at this stage to figure out what you have in Paredes than it is to attempt to sell tickets for people to come see a very old version of Miguel Cabrera. Yeah, I don't. I mean, that contract was, I think, forced by ownership. It was obviously going to be bad the day that they signed it. And as with the Pools contract, as with the Ryan Howard contract, you know, these are. We all knew they were bad. They ended up even worse. And I would love to say those are cautionary tales, but teams owners keep doing the same dumb stuff. So I don't. I hold out very little hope that owners are going to learn from this. They'll do the same thing over and over again. But again, as with pools. The first thing for the Tigers is just don't play him. Right? If you don't want to go all the way to releasing him, don't play him. You move the playing time somewhere else because he's actively hurting. There's no benefit to having Miguel Cabrera play regularly for you right now, just as there is no benefit to the Angels to having Albert Pujols play regularly. You lose more games unless you're actually, actually tanking, which I really don't think many teams in baseball are actively tanking like teams can do in other sports. There's no reason to play Cabrera regularly. He's looked done for several years now. Uh, and this is in line with, or even more extreme than everyone's expectations at the time that he did sign that contract extension. So it's no surprise. I don't think there's any reason 
to look at Cabrera and say that this is going to turn around sometime soon. And as you said, they should be giving this playing time to younger players, to Paredes. Can they shove, can they shuttle some players around and then make room for Spencer, Tor- Spencer Torkelson at some point this summer? They should. They absolutely should. They should not be giving more at-bats to Cabrera when they are still in a building mode and have players somewhere in the system who would be better served getting those at-bats, even if those are fringier prospects in between now and Torkelson. If you figured, okay, if Torkelson was drafted last year, he really hasn't had a chance. He's got two minor league games so far. Okay, fine. You want him to play a little bit longer? They have other guys who are essentially in the, the bubble prospects where you bring this kid up and, you know, so, so-and-so, the Daz Cameron types, and you say, all right, you're playing every day for two months and we're going to evaluate. And it's not just performance, but also now we have you know, exit velocity and sprint speed. We have lots of other ways to evaluate players and just let your coaching staff see the kids, see these kids and say, all right, we think that one's got a chance. We think that one doesn't. Okay, move him around. This guy gets DFA'd. You can evaluate better when you don't have this giant obstacle just like cemented into one of your 40-man roster spots and cemented into the lineup every day. Yeah, and I think even in the case where you turn a player like Miguel Cabrera into a once-per-week bench guy who maybe pinch hits one or two more times per week beyond that, in that scenario, you still want to make sure he's a good person to have in your clubhouse. That's going to vary from aging veteran to aging veteran too. Like Some of those guys can be good influences. Some of those guys are not good influences. So if there's some value you see having that guy as your last guy on the roster and you want to use that to help justify keeping him around, great. If that makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, that's what you have to do. But the Tigers have to figure out a solution for this just as the Angels finally figured out their solution for Pujols. Uh, since you brought up Torkelson, we didn't really talk about where he was assigned because I don't think we knew uh, when we spoke last week on this show. He's at high A West Michigan, still getting used to the Midwest League teams being high A, but uh, he's kind of extended what was happening for him in spring training just in terms of strikeouts being a pretty big problem for him. And reading some of the stuff that Cody Stavenhagen has written for The Athletic, it almost seems like Torkelson's putting himself in bad counts being too passive. And it seems like a weird problem for a guy like that to run into, especially you know, it gets spring training competition and now early on here in the Midwest League. Yeah, it is interesting. I don't want to draw any conclusions from what it, I, I'm not even kidding. Does he have two games, right? Did they Literally two. two games? It's two <laughs> games, right? Well, I know Wellington played has played two games. I went to one of them. Um, I just don't know. Obviously, a lot of teams have been rained out, etc. But, you know, if he's still doing this in a couple of weeks, then maybe there's a conversation to be had. Uh, he was patient, but not passive in college. I don't think that anyone ever, I don't remember anyone ever telling me that he was passive. I saw him as a sophomore I did not think he was being passive. Of course, I saw him against he and was that Hunter Bishop's year? Is that even right? But whatever it was, they it was a midweek game and they destroyed whatever smaller school they were facing that night. So maybe that wasn't necessarily the best read. But either way, I I don't think this is off of spring training and two games so far in high A. I would not be uh, expressing any concern. That is nowhere near enough time for him to make an adjustment if he needs to make an adjustment, if this isn't just noise. And so if, what is this, May 6th, if we get to Memorial Day, maybe first week of June, and it looks like this is still going on, okay, then it's worth having that conversation. Is there something Torkelson, is there something we missed on Torkelson, or is there a larger issue at play? I really don't believe that at this point. I'd say that I, I actually thought Torkelson wasn't the best prospect in last year's draft, but I will say I, I never thought this was that his approach was too passive and was going to be an issue for him. 
Yeah, I think even if you didn't see Torkelson as the best player in last year's draft class, the floor seemed to be mm-hmm. very, very high. Like you seemed like an unlikely bat to miss on based on what he had done at Arizona State. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I don't think there was any reason to think. I don't think anybody saw Torkelson and thought, well, he ain't going to hit. Right? It was, can he play a position? What position can he play? They're talking about third base. They're talking about left field. You know, I thought he was just okay at first. I had people say, no, he's a better athlete than you think he is, which is okay. It's great. You love to see a guy show more versatility maybe than you expected. But I also think that um, I don't think that anybody thought there was going to be an issue with Torkelson's bat in terms of anything, hitting for average ability to get on base and power. I mean, obviously, he wasn't going to walk as much in pro ball as he did in college. Very few guys carry all of that over because in college, you, you might get pitched around a lot more. But no, I don't. I had no concerns about Torkelson's ability to just hit, and I, and especially not for power. And I don't really remember anybody else expressing the same thing. I thought maybe his ceiling wasn't quite as high as people who were just scouting the stat line thought. That's about it. That's not really that big of a disagreement. And I, I think even his biggest detractors said, "No, he's going to hit. It's just maybe he's not going to be have this huge, huge ceiling because of positional limitations and because he's not as quick twitch maybe as some of the other." position players in the same draft class. So I got a question for you just about minor league evaluations as a whole, thinking about how during the shortened season, we were putting 2.7 times the weight on every game in the 60 game season. That was the number that kept floating around, right? Oh, every game's 2.7 times more important because they're only playing 60. Since we didn't have a minor league season last year, mm-hmm. obviously teams saw their guys at the alternate sites. That's worth a little something, but less than yeah. actual games. Do you think teams are going to be quicker in their judgments of their prospects in the minors this year as a way of making up for that lost time? Yeah, boy, I hope not, because that is just a recipe for bad decisions, that you've just got less data, and when you're working with less data, you are going to have a harder time separating signal from noise, and you're going to make some snap decisions that you'll probably end up regretting. And I think less about in terms of, you know, if you promote a guy a little bit too soon. Teams generally wait too long to promote guys, so I'm less concerned, I guess, about that. Promoting a guy too soon, in most cases, isn't going to do a ton of harm. There are a few where you worry, you know, when Jose Israel Garcia came up for the Reds last year and was just so overmatched. Could that maybe affect him? You know, did it seem like it affected him? Yeah, maybe. I brought this up with um, Philadelphia has a shortstop prospect named Luis Garcia, who was a superstar in the GCL at 17, I think. So they ran him all the way up to low A at 18. And I saw him multiple times that year for Lakewood, now Jersey Shore, which is not too far from my house and a beautiful ballpark. And by the end of the summer, the last time I saw him, Garcia just looked defeated at the plate because he didn't belong there. He wasn't physically strong enough to compete at that level. So there's some chance of that happening. But I'm much more concerned about teams, say, changing plans around a player, trading a player, souring just generally on a player gets off to a bad start. And before you know it, we're in trade season and they've only got six weeks of minor league games. It's, ah, this guy isn't as good as we thought he was. And somebody makes a mistake. And frankly, if I'm a GM, I'm looking around for prospects and maybe young big leaguers who whose short-term, short, small sample performance might not line up with our projections and scouting reports and say, maybe there's an opportunity here. Maybe we can steal a prospect somehow because somebody sours on him based on a small sample. Yeah, and especially when you're talking about a young big leaguer who's dealing with everything everybody else was dealing with during the pandemic year, 
who knows on an individual level what some of those guys were going through, right? We get stories about some, but we don't get stories about all. So I do think there's some pretty interesting trade opportunities that are going to surface over the course of this season and probably through the offseason as well. I want to talk about John Means for a bit. Of course, he threw a no-hitter on Wednesday, and it would have been a perfect game or could have been a perfect game if not for a strike three wild pitch that allowed <laughs> Sam Haggard to get on. But great outing from Means, 12 Ks, no hits, amazing day for him. I thought we were at the point with Means, Keith, where he was kind of a, a nice success story, a guy that was going to be a great answer to a trivia question, uh, you know, who represented the Orioles in the 2019 All-Star game. And right. You'd get a $75 bar tab covered at your favorite trivia spot, and <laughs> you'd love John Means forever for that. But it does look like they're getting a little more out of him than a lot of us expected. His career numbers now, over 248 innings with the Orioles. He's got a 348 ERA and a 103 whip. I mean, that's good. He's not missing a million bats for his career. He's about a, just under 8Ks per nine. Doesn't walk a lot of guys. Has a home run issue, but you could probably argue that a lot of those home runs are the byproduct of having to pitch half his games in Camden Yards. So what do the Orioles actually have here? And does this situation remind you of maybe what the Tigers went through when Matthew Boyd looked really good for a little while and they had these sort of tempting offers to possibly move him with multiple years of control left and they never quite got an offer that worked? And I kind of feel like they might have gotten offers that were certainly with what happened after the fact, right? They did get offers that worked. They just didn't take whatever offer they got, the best offer they should have just taken. They missed the window, and then he wasn't as good anymore. And Boyd, Boyd to me is a little bit different because Boyd was very homer prone in the minors. Then he developed a cutter and had that short stretch where he was really good because he was a different pitcher. He had a pitch that simply wasn't there, and then it was. And that pitch allowed him to have the major league success he had. And then when that pitch, I think, became a bit less effective, he was a lot more like what he was in, I forgot where I saw him, high A or double A. It was probably double A. It's like, this guy's going to give up a lot of homer. And he did when he first got to the big leagues before he added that pitch. With means, I feel a little more – one is that I, I think that this has been more of a gradual development case. It's not a case of just simply adding one pitch. I do think his changeup is probably plus, and I think that's a pitch that can carry him for a long time, even though – you know, I would argue his fastball is not, you know, it's not high spin, it's not super deceptive, but he really pounds the strike zone with it. And he's got a decent slider, he just doesn't use it a lot. And maybe it wouldn't be as good if he didn't if he used it more. I I, I really don't know. I haven't seen him throw enough of them to say that with any kind of uh, degree of confidence. But I think he's got enough command, enough of a four pitch mix. He's left handed, that never hurts to stick around as a decent big league starter for a while. And for an eleventh round pick. Uh, who was, you know, he was certainly seen in college. And by the way, started at a junior college. We'll continue our, you know, this <laughs> podcast is, we are we are in favor of junior college baseball. I think we should just put that out there. Junior colleges produce lots of good <laughs> players. And if for whatever reason, a four-year school is not for you, consider junior college. I think they're right. And he went one year at Fort Smith, two years at West Virginia. I think everybody saw this guy. And he went, to, went in the 11th round. I think he was, if anything, he was just a very slight overpay. And that's a hell of a value from for for the Orioles from that pick, and I think it again it's been gradual improvement. They've done a really nice job with him, especially in the last I'd say two to three years, um, developing him, helping refine that change up, and developing him into I could say a league average starter. Like if you're projecting over a period of multiple years, maybe I'm hedging my bets a little bit too much, but I think he could be that. And to your question, should they be willing to? I think your implied question was, should they be willing to entertain trade offers for him? Yes, 
Absolutely, right? If you're the Orioles, you should be willing to listen on anyone who's not nailed down right now. Uh, you know, maybe some team says we'll give you multiple good prospects slash you know zero to three young big leaguers. I mean, big leaguers who haven't don't have enough service time to reach arbitration yet. Uh, you know, maybe you could get a you know maybe a franchise altering type of package for a guy like him because because he's uh, because he's cheap because he's so effective and he's still not making a lot of money and you've got multiple years of team control remaining on his contract and therefore you could maybe you can get a higher return for him. I, I you absolutely should be open to it. The nice thing about Mike being Mike Elias in this situation is you don't have to do anything. There's no need you don't have to take the first best offer, but you should be listening. And Orioles fans should be, I'm sure you all love John Means. I would too if I were an Orioles fan. <laughs> but you should be good with trading him if you get enough in return because it'll push the club forward. Remember when Elias and his group took over, most of the good players from the Orioles Major League roster were gone. They didn't have a chance to come in and make a bunch of trades of good big leaguers to try to boost the farm system. They basically, everything good in that farm system was either already there, which a lot of it was, or what they've done themselves through the draft. There hasn't been much else. And one of the ways you can sort of accelerate a rebuild is by getting more through trading big leaguers. And, and that really hasn't been available to Elias so far. Yeah, and I do think controllable starters are one of those things that you can trade where you're actually going to get a pretty good return back. So wouldn't surprise me at all if he ends up being one of the better pitchers who gets moved in the next couple of months. And yep. looking at the split, I am really surprised to see this. 41 career home runs allowed, 21 at home, 20 on the road. Innings yeah. are pretty much even. It's not a Camden thing. It's really just righties. Camden does not play as an extreme home run park anymore. Maybe it did when it first, like, if you ask any announcer in baseball, they all think it's Coors Field East, <laughs> which it really hasn't. Uh, I think it's like a slightly above average hitters park, but not really. Um, you know, I think it's just that his fastball is a little bit ordinary. And I mean, we live in a time of extraordinary fastballs also. So <laughs> that is not an insult. But I feel like I mean, Boyd's was even worse in this regard, right? Where it's just, oh my God, that pitch is fairly flat, doesn't spin, not a lot of movement or life. And that's going to get, at this point, you could throw 99. And if your fastball does not have any positive secondary characteristics, you're probably going to get hit pretty hard on it. And you have to locate it well or work away from it. Means has the changeup. So he's got deception. He can lead just even just through that pitch. And so that he's able to keep hitters from sitting on the fastball too much. But he's probably always going to be a little homer prone as a result of that. He just does everything else well enough that I think he can still be a league average starter. Yeah, and again, that carries a lot of value when you're not paying mm -hmm. top dollar for those innings. Don't you think a lot of teams would, a lot of contenders right now, who are now suddenly, a lot of them are facing starting pitching deficits they did not anticipate, would say, I'll take a John Means. John Means would be our third starter right now. Yep. And give up, they'd give up a couple of prospects for him. And if I'm Elias, I'm like, <laughs> all day. Yeah. Just found sit money. There and be like, it's only May 6th. We have lots of time. Yes. <laughs> Watch this. We're going to get that slider to be even better, and he's going to get righties out more than he's ever got righties out before. You you're go. going to pay even more a couple months from now. Yeah, right. Just get him on the Emery board or nail, or that's not okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's frowned upon. Dang it. Means got me thinking about a couple other early pitching surprises. I wanted to talk about one in Atlanta. Waskar Noah. How did he cruise past Bryce Wilson and, and Kyle Wright since the end of last season and come up and actually have a lot of success here early on in 2021? Yeah, it's interesting because he's doing it with the slider. He's really a two-pitch guy. And we don't see a lot of good two-pitch starters where the second pitch is the breaking ball. You can be more of an effective two-pitch starter if you've got a really good change-up or splitter. We don't see a lot of splitters. I'm a big fan of the splitter also. But we were just talking about means. Means breaking ball is fine. It's not great. 
but he's fastball changeup, and he primarily pitches fastball changeup, and that means that he doesn't have the extreme platoon split that you typically find. You have guys who are fastball slider or fastball curveball or even fastball cutter, which is usually if that's what you are. Most of the time, you're just going to get shunted to the bullpen for that. If you guys can, there are other ways to do it. It's not universal, but it's a pretty good rule of thumb. Uh, you start with that as kind of the base rate, so to speak, and then move forward from there. And Inoa this year, although he's been quite effective against lefties, uh, some of this is BABIP-based, which is not likely to last. Um, that's probably going to regress to the mean. And the interesting thing is, of the lefties' bats he is missing, he's doing it with sliders. And a lot of sliders out of the zone, which uh, uh, two, I see two things, two, two reasons to believe that will normalize and also regress to the mean. One is that, just in general, breaking balls are not as effective against hitters on the other side of the plate because they spin in towards the hitter's bat path. And that is generally kind of something hitters tend to like. Um, but also just looking at Inoa's actual pitch data too, a lot of these are below the zone. And is he going to continue to get swings and misses from opposite side hitters when he's throwing that many breaking balls down a little bit down and in, just particularly down below the zone. I think probably not. He, I think he could continue to get a lot of swings and misses against right-handers on that. Maybe he does a little bit better against right-handers and sees his numbers against lefties kind of normalized. Uh, I'd always pegged him as a probable reliever because of the two-pitch issue. If he continues to miss left-handed bats at a rate like this over a much larger sample, I would absolutely you say that that was wrong, we would revise the evaluation. But given the tiny sample and the way he's doing this, I'm probably more of a skeptic that he'll be able to continue to get lefties out, turning over lineups multiple times. So that sort of middle ground is probably back-end starter, you know, mm -hmm. low to mid-fours ERA, mediocre sort of whip, but good enough to take the ball if you, you know, it's better than what Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson have been giving them. Exactly. And that's kind of the problem, right? Was Atlanta had this embarrassment of pitching riches and a lot of these guys have just stalled. Kyle Wright has stalled. Bryce Wilson has stalled. Tukey Toussaint has, I mean, he, he might have the highest ceiling of all of this group of guys, uh, no longer considering Freed and Anderson who are established. And uh, th these guys have not been, a lot of them have had success up through AA, up through AAA, and they've not translated that into the majors. And I think that's also part of, you asked at the, the when you brought up Inoa, how has he passed all these other guys? A lot of these other guys have just stalled. They were really good prospects in everyone's estimation. Kyle Wright was the fifth pick in the draft. Chucky Saint was a first rounder. Bryce Wilson, after his after they cleaned up his delivery right when he got into pro ball, he was ripped through the minors. And I had scouts and executives say to me, he might be the best of that whole little cadre. And they've all stalled when they got to the big leagues. I don't know the reason. I don't know that there is a single reason. But the fact that that whole group is just kind of stuck in neutral has allowed Inoa and could it, maybe someone else does it. Maybe Tucker Davidson ends up leapfrogging the whole group um, and becoming a more effective starter while we're still waiting for Kyle Wright to become the pitcher he's supposed to be. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Uh, the other pitcher that has really caught my eye going back to last season, he sort of just picked up where he left off. He's been even better than he was in 2020 is Christian Javier in Houston. We've got 80 innings now in the big leagues, a 293 ERA, a .96 whip, 84 Ks in those innings, has a little bit of a home run problem, doesn't walk too many guys, misses plenty of bats. Is this a development success story that you're willing to believe in? Mostly, yes. So when the Astros under Jeff Luno and Sigmundal and Mike Elias, you know, many of whom are now in Baltimore, one of the things they uh, really kind of went after before other clubs were even recognizing it. They were big on things like spin axis or other 
ways that pitches could be fastballs, especially could be more deceptive than the typical fastball. And Javier, he's got like an invisible. He's not throwing it super hard. It doesn't have super high spin and hitters just swing right through it like he's throwing in the upper 90s. And it's not necessarily spin direction issue, but uh, because if you look his, I'm just looking at his baseball salon page right now, it's not that different. But I will say that there is a huge difference between the way that his four-seamer spins, this perceived direction of his four-seamer versus that of his two breaking balls. That might be why he can get away with – he throws fastballs in the zone that I watch and I say, that should get hit. That pitch should get hit and they don't. <laughs> and you know, on the one hand, you, you know, first time you see it, you're like, well, maybe I just caught him on the right night. But after a while, it's sort of, hey, you know, hitters hit. And when they don't hit, they're telling you something. And I think we're seeing you – know, now I feel like we're seeing enough of a sample of Javier in the big leagues who despite having what appears to be not particularly elite – stuff, at least in terms of the fastball, not in terms of velocity, not in terms of spin rate, hitters just don't hit it. And that's telling us something. And I am fine seeing him as potentially uh, an above league average starter for a while now, which they desperately need, right? Forrest Whitley. Go, you know, Forrest Whitley is like their Kyle Wright. This guy was supposed to be established in the big leagues right now. And obviously now it's an injury. Before that, it was just kind of lost the strike zone without any real explanation. But uh, you know, without Christian Javier... I feel like the Astros' outlook for this season is kind of a good bit worse. Without him and Luis Garcia, both these guys have looked really good. And Garcia, I I was higher on than I was on Javier because everything I heard from scouts on Javier coming up was like, yeah, this really works in double A. Is this going to work against big league hitters? Is this going to deceive big league hitters the same way it fools double A hitters? Fun fact. Actually, it does. What's amazing to me, looking at some of the heat maps over at the Baseball Savant page for Javier's, mm-hmm. it looks like he locates his secondaries really well. Like you see pretty tightly clustered red spots, mm-hmm. slider outside, curveball down, changeup in. You just don't see a blob that gets the wrong parts of the strike zone. That like the fastball looks a little erratic. Like fastball command looking at the But he's chart. living up, like, right? There's nothing at the boat. We're both looking at the same thing. This is I know this is really exciting for listeners to watch <laughs> the two of us describe heat maps that you could go look up yourself. <laughs> but look, there's nothing there's almost, he throws almost no fastballs in the lower third of the zone. Like that's that's two things, right? That is related to the specific characteristics of the fastball. Also that's that's kind of been the Astros approach for a while now. That is a system-wide approach that predates the current regime there, that they wanted guys who could miss bats at the top of the zone. They realized that that was an opportunity and identified pitchers who they thought had fastballs or could be given fastballs that would do that. And then they taught those pitchers to pitch like that. And Javier was there for a long time under the previous regime, and he continues to pitch that way. Look at the shape of that. kind of looks like a catcher actually squatting, doesn't it? (laughs) If you look at the red zone in the middle. Uh, It does. It looks exactly like a catcher squatting. Isn't that what that is? That's kind of interesting. Some sort of baseball Rorschach test, I guess. (laughs) But there's clearly an intent, right? I'm going to pitch in the upper half of the zone, particularly towards the top of the zone, especially up and in, it looks like, to right-handers with the four-seamer. It works. And he's doing it enough now that he's doing it over, what is it? He's got three months in the big leagues, about half a season work, maybe a little less. He's missing enough bats here that I feel like we can be confident. I can be confident in saying that previous anything previous I'd written about his fastball was probably wrong. It's better than I, I had said. I don't know offhand what I said, but it's better than that. I would look at him and say, if you want to look at projections, for example, a lot of those are going to be even mid fours and higher for the ERA. I think the projection systems have failed to catch up to what he's doing at this point. I take the under. I take that. the under on all those projections. I mean, the best projection, most optimistic projection, I should say, from the bat is 434 for the ERA, 126 from the whip. I'm under that ERA too, Keith. I think he's more like a 3-8 guy. I think he's going to be 
a top 30 to 40 range starter here on out. I think that's what he's shown us so far. Yeah, I, I'm I'm on board. And I say that as somebody who was, like I said, I was a bit of a skeptic. He never made my top 100, for example. And in hindsight, he certainly should have. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. I want to talk about the other Masson team. We talked about the Orioles a little while ago. I don't know why Masson's on my mind. Uh, really great regional cable network. Not really. Uh, <laughs> the Nats are 12 and 14 entering play on Thursday, and they just look like a team that's aged very quickly. But I, I kind of take issue with the idea that the Nats are old and totally broken because they've got Juan Soto and Trey Turner. And if you have mm-hmm. two guys to build around, those are two pretty good guys to build or rebuild around. And at one point, you could have included Victor Robles as part of that foundation too. He's showing some signs of improved play discipline early on, but it's been a really slow start for him. And of course, the shortened season for Robles was brutal coming off of a 2019 that looked pretty good, at least Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, age to level sort of production for a first time full season big leaguer. What do you see in this team? Because some of the season long projections have dipped to the point where I think they're projected to be a below 500 team now for the season. I think some of the betting markets have shifted in terms of playoff odds on the Nats as well. Are you as bearish on the Nats as models and other calculations seems to be? I mean, who's going to start? Right, to me, that's the whole question is they've got one starter pitching even close to average at this point. Obviously, Max Scherzer is Max Scherzer, right? Everyone else, Joe Ross has been actually close to average. That's that's not entirely fair. He's below average. Fetty's been awful. I really don't think he's a starter long term. I kind of never really have. Patrick Corbin's been an inexplicable disaster. Strasburg is hurt. Paolo Espino made a start for them this year. I mean, props to anyone who had Paolo Espino making a start for the Nationals this year. I did not. uh, He's 34. I'm not sure I could have told you what team he was on if you asked me three weeks ago. I really don't think I could have. And John Lester made a start, which is nice. Obviously, a guy you root for, but He's not missing a lot of bats. He's not going to miss a lot of bats. He could be maybe a fifth starter. They need more than a fifth starter. So any real skepticism I have about this team is just because what is that rotation? How how are they going to fill those innings and get good enough starting pitching work? Unless we get some unexpected turnarounds from the likes of you know Corbin. Uh, what what's the ex, what is the answer here? What where are they going to get above average starting pitching innings from? Because I don't. I don't see it. And they have pitching prospects, but these guys are all, they're all here in high A. I saw Jackson Rutledge the other night. He was really good. He's not ready for the big leagues. Yeah, he's not ready to replace Eric Fetty yet. No, no. 
bad news for for Mike Rizzo and company. I went to the the bad place again, thinking about the Nats because I was thinking about them in light of the Orioles as a team on the long term trajectory of getting better. Right, they're deep into their rebuild. Which of those teams makes a playoff appearance next? Is it completely off the walls to say actually the Nats are starting to fall apart and it could be a few years and by the time they're fixed the Orioles might actually be good I feel like the Nats are way more likely to go spend some money and try to fix this and as you said they have Soto and Turner Robles is probably just never going to be what he was originally expecting he doesn't he really doesn't make enough hard contact but they have two really good players at the heart of the roster and owners who've generally spent some money, um, you know, the f- what I wonder is, do they trade Max Scherzer at the, you know, towards the trade deadline and then try to go back out there into the free agent market this winter and load up again? Because we got Juan Soto and Trey Turner. We shouldn't walk away from a core like that. It seems more likely to me that Nats ownership would do something like that than that the Orioles ownership would spend. I don't see the Orioles ownership spending anytime soon. And that is not really a reflection on baseball operations. I think this is just ownership saying we're not making any money and therefore we're not going to spend any money. It's not going to be until the young players get there and start making the team better that maybe they'll think about spending again. And that makes me think they're on a long runway towards returning to the playoffs. So you're comfortable with more of a retool than a full tear it down and rebuild it in Washington. Yeah, I feel like, and I also feel like Mike Rizzo not that he would, not that he's not capable of it, but this is a guy who's been, they've been in win now mode for like 10 years. So I would be surprised if he were on board for tearing it down too. He'd say, nope, let's just retool. I can, tra- okay, maybe he trades Max Scherzer and gets, maybe he trades him for rather than getting a package of four prospects. He gets two guys, but they're closer to helping the big league. One guy who's ready to help in the big leagues right now, something more like that. And then says, this winter we'll go out again and I'll, continue to load up. I'll try to go get another uh, elite starting pitcher to replace Scherzer at the top of the rotation. Maybe you get Strasburg, you figure Strasburg's back and he's healthy again next year and you get something more out of him. I I don't know. It's not an easy fix. I don't mean to hand wave away. The Nationals do have some kind of fairly deep roster problems now, but I also feel like they're more willing to go out and get outside help, whereas I don't think the Orioles are going to do that soon. I think the hardest thing about running the Nationals right now is that you're just not doing a good job developing pitching at all. It's among the worst organizations in the league over the last 15 years in terms of what they've been able to develop for pitching. And you don't get credit for developing Steven Strasburg. That was a no-brainer. That was a layup. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of ready. <laughs> he was just ready. He, he was ready coming out of San Diego State. Yeah, and they squandered Lucas Giolito. They traded Giolito. Now, Ronaldo Lopez hasn't turned into much, but I think he could still be a really good reliever. And Dane Dunning looks like a serviceable big league starter, and they gave up on all, not. They traded all three of those guys, and they got not a ton in return, and they also just gave up on Giolito. That, to me, is the most most shocking part. And he would be the, after Strasburg, he's the next most talented pitching prospect they've had in the system in Mike Rizzo's tenure, and they walked away from it. They just said, nope, we don't think he's going to be that good, and obviously that was a mistake. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, organizationally speaking, in terms of teams that develop pitching well, other end of the country, uh, the Dodgers. They're without Dustin May now for the rest of the season, probably for the early part of 2022 as well, Mm -hmm. given the normal recoveries from Tommy John at this point. David Price on the IL right now, Tony Gonsolin on the IL right now, a few bullpen arms on the IL too. So they've got a lot of injuries piling up that are testing that depth a little bit. 
they're going to be fine. No one's crying for the Dodgers right now. <laughs> I'm sad for Dustin May because it looked like he was turning a corner to begin this season, to be very yeah, he's clear really about that. Exciting. Yeah, like the yeah. the questions about Dustin May in the playoffs, like, why isn't this guy striking more guys out? Well, he, he was striking more guys out. He was starting to yeah, do those things, which was really yep. exciting. So I feel awful for him. Where do they go to get the quality innings they need in the back of this rotation? They've got a little stretch of schedule here where they don't need a fifth starter for at least another week or so. So they've got a little time, but Gonsolin's not going to be ready at the end of that stretch. Are we going to see Josiah Gray possibly contributing in the rotation at some point, maybe later this summer? I wonder if they would try other guys. Like, would they try to stretch Mitch White out and let him make some short starts, you know, twice through the order? starter rather than gray who i believe pitches tonight i mean by the time this podcast is up he will have pitched triple a oklahoma city they start thursday night i am assuming he's their opening night starter uh I, i'm i like josiah gray a lot i don't know that he's necessarily ready nothing we've seen from him so far says to me he's ready right now to step into a rotation spot he could be there in two months with, I'd like to just see it, right? Let's see him out and pitching some games and see how much better he, I'm sure he's better. I heard he was better based from what the Dodgers people said from last year. He was even in their playoff bubble last year, and there's a chance he would have been added to the roster in October. So obviously they feel like he can do something in the big leagues, but this is in October, right? You're thinking long-term, you're trying to make sure you're also continuing to develop him best for the long-term as a starter. I'm not sure that he'd necessarily be ready to step in and do that right now. And I, would, I certainly would rather see them uh, like I said, like take Mitch White, and who is a starter, has been a starter, could probably help them in a short starting role and get a little bit creative the next time they do need a starter, and they can sort of patch with it. Can be a bit of a bullpen day, but Mitch White isn't doesn't necessarily just have to be an opener either. Uh, looking at the other guys in the roster, I watched Edwin Uceta's major league debut the other day. I don't think that's enough stuff for him to be a big league starter. Maybe he could be. He might be a nice bullpen piece, but. That's probably not going to work. They don't really have another guy here who you think you, who I think they could stretch out to a starter role. I know they've tried Dennis Santana in that role before. He was a starter before he originally got hurt. He, well, he's not pitching well enough to even merit that chance right now. Small sample, but also I've always thought delivery wise, secondary stuff, he was probably going to be better cast in relief. So they're in a bit of a short term bind. Like you said, no one's weeping for them. I am not weeping for them. Uh, but I could see them having some concerns about filling innings for that last rotation spot for the short term. Or if anything goes wrong with the other four guys in the rotation, right? Because pitchers just get hurt often without a whole lot of warning. They are not super well equipped to handle another hit to the rotation in addition to all the ones they've already had. Yeah, especially if it's one of the big three, right? If they lose one of Bueller or Kershaw or Urias, I mean, that's a, a huge blow for them. Walker Bueller has two walks this year. Pretty fun. I did not know that. That's really fun. Two walks and 145 batters faced. I think that's good, Derek. It's very good. Um, at least I'm told that's very good. Yeah. Sources tell me that is good. The uh, last question I have for you, I mean, Gonsolin's coming back from a shoulder injury, so that's why I don't think it's a guarantee that he comes back and he's the guy that he was throughout the regular season last year. Did you think we were starting to see opposing teams actually figure him out in the postseason, or do you think that was just small sample aberration where what we saw in the regular season from him and in a swing role in 2019, that's actually a level that Gonsolin can sustain because his numbers, again, we're talking about 86 and two thirds innings now, 14 starts, 20 appearances in total. It's really good. A 260 ERA and a .92 whip with 
about a strikeout per inning. It's amazing to have depth like that. But is he actually that good? I think he's a starter. I think he might be more of a fourth starter. I think he, God, when he was when he first emerged as a prospect, sort of who the heck is this ninth round pick out of? Is he St. Mary's? I'm going to say the wrong school. St. Mary's. He is St. Mary's. I got it right, and he was ninth round, in fact. And then he, he was, but he was a two way guy, and we finally gave up being a position player, and suddenly all the stuff got better. You know, we we talk about. I feel like I talk about that a lot in the draft. It's often a hope and a wish. Oh, well, he does both, but when he just does one, he'll be better. They don't always, but some. T- Gonsolin is an example of where that I think that actually happened. Uh, even when he was coming up, I knew a lot of scouts who loved him and still thought he might be better cast as a swing man, as a hundred plus inning, sometimes starter, sometime reliever. Maybe doesn't take thirty two, take the ball for you thirty times a year. I think he can, assuming the shoulder allows it. Obviously, set that aside. But I think there's plenty of stuff there for him to be a big league starter. I'm not worried about small sample postseason facing good lineups. Um, you know, late in the year where maybe he, who knows if he was, who knows if the shoulder was already starting to bother him at that point. But if he's fully healthy, I think he's a starter. I don't think he's got a huge ceiling, but I think he's, he, I would feel very, very confident saying you're the fifth starter. Assuming the big four that they have in their rotation are still there and healthy. If Gonsolin becomes the fifth, I could see him doing that for a while. And then, you know, maybe he gets to July and Josiah Gray really is further along. And then he comes up, takes the spot, Gonsolin becomes that swing man again. Or they could break Gray in as the new Gonsolin, use him as the multi-inning yeah. reliever, and then push him Huge into the rotation later. I mean, they've done it so well, and always having that next guy ready goes a long way, too. You lose a starter, you got a guy pretty much stretched out already in your bullpen, too, ready to go and, and fill that void. Well, that is going to wrap things up for this episode of The Athletic Baseball Show. I should say, if you have not already subscribed to The Athletic, you should do that. Theathletic.com slash baseball show will get you an offer for $3.99 a month to start. That will enable you to read all the great stuff that we're doing site-wide, including Keith's latest piece. He got that live look that he mentioned earlier at Jackson Rutledge and Grayson Rodriguez. You can read his breakdown of those two pitchers. You can check out the top 100 prospects list anytime you want. Nice to have that at the ready if you just want to do some reading on prospects, plus all the organizational rankings that Keith did a while back as well. You can hear Keith on the Keith Law Show as well every Monday, so be sure to check that out. You can hear me on Rates and Barrels along with the other fantasy baseball shows. On Twitter, he's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. 